Hey creepy people, this is P&W Haunts and Homicides. I'm Caitlin. And I'm Cassie. Together we explore stories of the paranormal and true crime throughout the Pacific Northwest. We're just two normal-ish friends who wanted more creepy local stories. Our episodes start with a tarot reading to help us gain some insight on each topic as we share the facts of the case and our interpretations. Come join us. We've got plenty of wine, laughs, and stories to share. You can find our episodes featuring true stories from infamous as well as lesser-known true crime cases like the murders in Tunnel 13 and Forest Park. As well as our spooky stories from Pike Place in the Oregon Vortex on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, and many more. For all of you that are listening, if you have any true crime or paranormal stories that you want us to share, email us at pnwhauntsandhomicides at gmail.com. Have Have a a creepy creepy ass ass day. day. On this episode of Common Mystics, we are taken in by the controversial figure of a respectable man turned brigand in the early history of the American West. I'm Jennifer James. I'm Jill Stanley. We're psychics. We're sisters. We are common mystics. We find extraordinary stories in ordinary places. And today we have a story for you out of Natchez, Mississippi. This is very controversial even for us we were going back and forth you hate this man so let's just get right (laughs) into it i don't like this man at all it's true we were driving north out of louisiana headed home to the midwest when we were Mm -hmm. passing through mississippi we sure were jill can you remind everyone of our intention absolutely it was as it always is to find a verifiable story previously unknown to us, that gives voice to the voiceless. That's right. And as we were driving north, we were passing through the city of Natchez. And what were we feeling? First of all, we had to stop at Natchez. It was like reverberating energy. It is a very special place. Totally. What were the vibes you were picking up on on the car? Honestly, you were feeling most of the vibes on this one. That's true. Because there was a lot. We were both feeling the sense of community. Mm -hmm. Family connections as well as as community. Right. And then there was the idea of a crossroads or a highway that was important. Absolutely. And we Mm -hmm. were feeling the feeling of being under attack, similar to that ambush feeling we were picking up on in Salt Lake. Yes, but specific for travelers. Attack on travelers. Yes, Yes. that was a little bit of a different feeling. Absolutely. The feeling of being left for dead. Yes, like ambushed and left behind. Yes, like left Mm -hmm. in the road to die. Right, For the animals to pick at your body. Just saying. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But also, you had a very specific uh, sense for women in particular. Yes. Tell me about that. It was giving me the sense of false modesty as if a woman was kind of, uh, God, help me here. Pretending to be something she wasn't. Exactly. Not like as far as a disguise, but definitely like giving a vibe, wanting them to be perceived in a certain way. Yes. And the inability to blend into a community or a crowd, Mm. like you were sticking out like a sore thumb constantly. Mm -hmm. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. It kind of went with that whole sense of community and then this kind of conflict 
energy of standing out. So you have the community and then you have this sense of standing out of the community. That's right. Very true. Yeah. So, of course, none of this made any sense to us. It never does. <laughs> but we stopped at Natchez because it is pretty crazy energetically. So much going on. Can you tell me a little bit about the history? Yeah. So Natchez is on the Mississippi River in the modern day state of Mississippi. And even before it was settled by Europeans, the city was the home to the Natchez Native Americans. So if you guys are interested in hearing our impressions about the Native American vibes we were getting at the mounds, check out our detours on our Patreon. So Natchez, the city itself, was a very strategic location, Jill, because it was on a bluff overlooking the Mississippi River, right? That's right. And so because of that, over time, it would become a pivotal center for trade commerce. And then the interchange of you have Native American culture, European culture, and African cultures in the region. And it was an important center of commerce and trade for two centuries. That's insane. It's also notable because of its role in the development of the American West. I, when I think of like the American Southwest, I never think of what came before it. And this is a precursor to that time of Clint Eastwood movies. You know what I mean? This is what was happening before that. Yeah, exactly. Right. Before Mm -hmm. the Old West, it had to be established in some way. And Natchez played a part in that. See, because it was the southern end of an important trail. Tell me everything. Okay. The trail and the word that is used for it is trace. T-R-A-C-E. It Mm -hmm. really just means trail. And there was an important trail that ran from Nashville, Tennessee to Natchez, Mississippi. It was called the Natchez Trace. It ran 440 miles, like I said, from Nashville, Tennessee to Natchez, Mississippi, and linked three different important rivers, the Cumberland, the Tennessee, and the Mississippi. So it's right along these major thoroughfares for trade. Wow. Like every other important route in this country, it was first used by Native Americans, of course. Always. And then, right. And then later the Europeans are like, hey, they're onto something. This is a really important route, right? And so they made it more official, right? And it was traveled by American explorers, traders, and emigrants who would come over on their stagecoaches in the late 1700s and early 1800s. So this is a really well-traveled highway. Yes, to a lot of different people for a lot of different purposes. Yes. Mm -hmm. And you have to remember when we're talking about the late 1700s, this would have been forest and wilderness. So the idea that there is a well-traveled path is really, really important. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Because if you think of a forest, like the United States during that time, like this is a forested area, it would be so hard to know how to navigate that, especially if you're new to the area. But this has been walked on and developed over, like you said, centuries. So this would have been a little jewel, especially 440 miles from Nashville to Natchez. It would have been major. I also want to say that because this is a forested area, it is under the cover of trees. There's a canopy over it. So if you're at your house, you can't see what's happening on the highway. Ooh, that's a really good point. Oh, I Mm. bet it would have been kind of dark then and maybe scary. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm thinking like Little Red Riding Hood, you know, like that idea of like going through the woods with a basket of goods. Yes, that's a great imagery. Thank you. 
So the trace was important for a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons was for merchants. And that's because merchants would be taking their cargo by boat through the Ohio River, the Cumberland, and down the Mississippi. But back in the late 1700s, boats couldn't go upriver. So once they took their goods downriver to be sold, then they would have all this cash on them, and then they'd have to make the trek back east home over land. And that would be what the trace was used for? Yes, exactly. So if you were headed northeast, chances are you had a lot of cash on you because you were just at a major trading post. You were just at the marketplace. Exactly. Well, Jennifer, I dare say if I were a 'er ne'er-do-well of the time, I... (laughs) What do you mean if you were a 'er (laughs) ne'er-do-well? I myself may go to the trace for nefarious reasons. It does seem that if you were a brigand or an outlaw, this would be the perfect place to prey on people who had a lot of cash. Yep. Tell me what you know about the bandits of the Trace. The Trace was known to be a hideout for bandits Mm -hmm. and a hotbed for gangs and highwaymen, which makes perfect sense. A hundred percent. According to RedboneNation.com, the Natchez Trace had a bloody history of robbery, of ambush, of murder as the bandits prowled there. Mm. So yeah, it appears that it was well known to be dangerous. But there was there was literally no other options back then. So you pretty much had to go that way. Exactly. So bandits preyed on settlers with full wagons. So you'd have settlers going out west and all of their stuff that they had in their wagons. Yeah, they were moving. They were, yeah, they were prey to the bandits who would rob them. But also, like I said, the cash-carrying travelers who had just sold their goods downriver and were now making their way back home east. Can you tell me about Samuel the Wolfman Mason? I can tell you about him. But first, let me say that one of my favorite names ever in all of our podcasts so far, Wolfman, he does sound like a shock DJ from the 1970s, just saying. Like he would be on FM radio, does, you know, Mm -hmm. like American graffiti, something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, he is a very interesting person. He is said to have terrorized travelers and operated large gangs of organized brigands. Mm -hmm. He would become this sort of mastermind of robbers. But where did it come from? Do we know anything about his early history? We do, and it's quite surprising, actually. Tell me everything. According to Legends of America, Samuel Mason was born in Norfolk, Virginia, to a distinguished family in around 1739. So his family was not only distinguished, they were connected and they were wealthy. Wow, that is surprising. Yeah, he was a man of means. So how, like, I don't understand where, how did he become a bandit, like a notable bandit? Am I skipping ahead? Do I need to slow my roll? That's okay. I just want to say that there was a historian, Lyman C. Draper, who recorded the story of Samuel Wolfman in some of his notebooks. And he said that Mason was connected with the distinguished Mason family of Virginia and grew up bad from his boyhood. Ooh, so they knew he was off. You know what? That's what this one historian said. 
I mean, he would have had to show some sort of weird signs as a child. You don't just like grow up good and then go bad. We do have a family member that grew up bad. And there were signs when that person was a child that were like that. That's a little off. A little little off there. Anyway, that's the only thing I could find from his childhood. But Samuel Mason was married in about 1767 to Rosanna Dorsey, and they would have a lot of children. Depending on the sources, we're not sure how many, but between eight and ten children. That is a lot of children. They had quite the clan. Ooh, that's a good way to put it. More Mm -hmm. on that later. But he was a war hero. During the American Revolution, he actually became an honored captain of the Ohio County Militia. Okay. He had a notable event happen in the summer of 1777. What happened? So our man, Samuel Mason, is out and he's part of the militia and he is hunting the Native Americans. I want to call him Wolfie. Go ahead. Wolfie. So Wolfie, just kidding, Samuel Mason is hunting Native Americans and there is a fort called Fort Henry and the guys in charge are like, okay, we know that the natives are in cahoots with the British. We need to bring more forces to Fort Henry. So they send Mason in his militia. He's hunting natives anyway. That's right. Exactly. So according to the Outlaws of Cave and Rock, historical accounts of the famous Highwaymen and River Pirates by Otto A. Rothert. There were 400 Native Americans that were laying in hiding in cornfields near Fort Henry. If he was looking for natives, he found them. He sure did. But only six of the men were out in the open on the road to the fort. So Mason hears, hey, there's six There's six natives out on the road. He takes it upon himself to proceed with 14 men to attack the six natives. Those are pretty good odds. Yeah. But he arrives and then he discovers that he'd actually been trapped by several hundred natives who are hiding in the cornfields. They come out and it was a massacre. And Mason was wounded, but he was able to conceal himself and hide behind a fallen tree until all of the natives withdrew after the massacre was over. Oh my gosh. It's a bloodbath. It was. And I think like at the time they were like, oh, it's an act of bravery. But looking back, historians are like, yeah, no, it was it was foolish. It was too daring. And it would show later on that he had more confidence than he had sense. And he had this sense of I'm not going to fail. Yeah, I'm a Mason. My family is like notable. Right. I'm I'm a person of importance. There's no way I can fail. You know who I am? You know who I am? So I just think that that whole situation is really interesting to his the arc of his character. Okay, so what happened after the war? He's he's a veteran. He's putting his feet up. He survived. He survived, and it took him two years to recover from the wounds of the massacre at Fort Henry. At least he recovered, though. He did. In 1779, he moves his family to Washington County, Pennsylvania. He buys a 500-acre farm, and he appears to settle down. He was actually elected Justice of the Peace. Okay. Yeah, and he was a judge. So it looks like he establishes himself as a distinguished contributing member of society. What can go wrong? However, it was also said that he was struggling financially, had become deeply in debt. 
he did have eight to 10 kids living outside. I mean, that's easy to do when you have a big family. And there are accusations during this period that he was a thief. Do you know of any examples of what happened during this period? There is one story that I heard that he was selling fraudulent land contracts to people looking to settle in the area. So like oh. he was like, hey, there's this land over here and here's the paperwork for it. Go ahead and sign giving the money and then would like it wasn't his land to sell. It was just completely bogus. And he was a man who would have had some prestige at this point. Yeah, he's the judge. Right. So after these accusations, he moved his family out. Yeah. He just moved. He decided to move. He picked up and his family moves to Kentucky now. Just a side note, the people that had debts that Samuel owed send someone to find Samuel and to bring him back to pay for the debts and they couldn't find him. But like they oh, like really? legit send someone. They were like, hey, man, you can't just leave with all the like the stuff that you owe us. Oh, I know. So they pursued him, but never found him. Yeah, they say they never found them. I would almost, I would argue if someone sent me to go find the wolf man, I would be like, oh, I couldn't find him. I don't know where he is. It sounds like he just went into hiding after that. Definitely living outside of society at this point. Absolutely. So it's here in Kentucky, Jill, where he goes all bad. Oh, he's all in on the badness. Is he breaking bad? Now he embraces it and he starts to organize his criminal operations. Ooh, what does that look like? He uses his family to help him do this. Like well, his you many say sons. Use. It's the business at this point. They're in the family biz. It's the family business. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. Throughout the 1790s, they lived in Kentucky along the Ohio River. Mm-hmm. Again, the Ohio River is an important thoroughfare for boats and merchants. So mm-hmm. I don't think it's an accident that he shows up there. Absolutely not. So we have evidence that not only was he a thief, but also a murderer. I don't believe a word you're saying. Back it up. Back it up. Where are the receipts? The first time that we have some evidence of him murdering someone, it's actually his son-in-law. Shut I'm not even kidding. I'm not even kidding. This is like a Tony Soprano type deal here. Stop it right now. Stop it right now. It actually reminds me more of Michael killing Connie's husband from The Godfather. Yes. Mm -hmm. That Mm -hmm. whole archetype of the mob boss. That's what we're Mm. picking up here. Yes. So here's how it went down. And this is according to The Outlaw Years by Robert M. Coates. From the outset, it's bad news because his daughter marries a noted scalawag. You know what? I don't know what a scalawag is, but I really think I I like him. (laughs) I really think I would like a scalawag. I think we would definitely be scalawags if we lived back then. I think they're basically 'er ne'er-do-wells. So according to the American Pioneer, which was published in 1843, there were witnesses to the murder and the events surrounding it back in July of 1794. So this is what happened. Let me let me just break it down. So his his daughter falls in love with a scallywag, right? (laughs) Yes. Loves him. Yes. She is. She's bringing him around the house, hiding him from her father, like in her petticoat straight up. Like she'd be like, I'm in for the evening, parents, and then walk upstairs <laughs> with him underneath her petticoat, yes, right? Yes, that's true. And then, and that's how she would leave in the morning. She'd be like, oh, what a wonderful day for a walk. And then he would be under her petticoat as she leaves. Right. So 
after Samuel Mason gets hold of like she's with the scallywag and she's like, oh, my God, I love him, dad. I love him so much. We're going to be married. Right. He, he's like over my dead body. Right. And then so they escape. They run away. Right. They like are like, oh, my God, my dad's going to kill me. I just need to stick up for Samuel Mason here because her boyfriend is a guy who is a known criminal on the run from like the Carolina somewhere. And he has oh. this strange. Hold on. He has this strange Freddy Krueger glove. Do you remember that? This <laughs> yes, is weird. He but he has this like knife glove that he somehow fashioned, right? Way ahead of his okay. time, by the way. Way ahead of his time. That he would like use it as Two a weapon. Things. Hello, pot. My name is Kettle. Number one. Number two, <laughs> okay. you okay. they always say that a daughter marries their father. That's so who are we blaming really here, Wolfie? Who are we blaming here? He was a really bad guy. So continue. I okay, mean, so she's the, the claw glove is pretty ingenious for the time and frightening. Right? Yeah. Anyway, so she leaves with claw. She's marrying him. She eloped. She's like, we can never go back because my dad's going to kill both of us if we go exactly. back. Exactly. But then she gets word that, you know what? Daddy was a little rash. He understands. Right. He's going to go. He's going to welcome him now. Let's bring in the son-in-law. Let's welcome in and throw a party. Yes. May you have many, many children. Bring them on home. We're going to we're going to do it upright. It's a shame you had to elope. So they have this reception. This big it's ball. beautiful. It's big. Everyone's dancing. It's like a rockin' time. YMCA. And then outside of the reception hall, three of her brothers, Samuel's three sons, three of the sons are waiting. So when the party's over or when he like goes outside for a cigarette or whatever, they kill the bridegroom. The scallywag is gone. 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 Can you imagine I cannot imagine what the daughter was thinking. I can't. I would have kept the glove. So that is the first murder that has been attributed to Samuel Mason. Now, I want you to note that he really didn't kill anybody himself. He had his sons do it. Just FYI. Exactly. He, he didn't get his own hands dirty. Mm-mm. So they're still living along the Ohio River, right? This is another thing he'd done his family dirty on. He was using the women in his family to lure people from stopping on the river. So what do you mean? Yes. What do you mean? So like, so they're going along the Ohio River. And like we said, people were traveling the rivers to get to, to the West. There would be like a small island in the river or just off the banks. He would stage the girls in his family, whether it be his daughter-in-laws or his daughters, to look like they were in distress, like they were like abandoned or their or their ship was broken. They were bait. They were bait. So people would stop, like good Samaritans would stop and be like, hey, girls, what can we do to help you? And then the men in the family would ambush them and steal their stuff. Wow. I think you're going to see a theme of how he mistreats the women of his family, of his own family. Just saying. Yeah. Starting with the poor girl whose husband died or was murdered. Awful. So they don't stay in Kentucky for very long. They actually yeah, move. memories. <laughs> they move their headquarters further downriver to Cave and Rock on the Illinois shore. Now, by this time, Samuel Mason has gathered even more followers and they base themselves. This whole big clan, this Mason clan is based now at this place called Cave and Rock. It is a literal cave in a literal rock. Okay. Okay. I can see why they named it that. That makes total sense. 
So, but once again, it was all a ruse. See, people are starting to know that Samuel Wolfman Mason is a robber and a brigand and you should steer clear of him, right? He's starting to make a name for himself as a notorious outlaw. So he takes on an alias as Wilson. Wilson! And there is a sign on the cave that said, Wilson's Liquor Vault and House for Entertainment. Wow. Now, would you stop? Well, the Liquor Vault, yeah. <laughs> You got to make a pit stop. Well, this is my question. So Cave and Rock became like a lion's den off a modern day highway. Is that what you're saying? What do you mean by that? Do you don't know what I'm talking about? Our listeners won't. Okay. So lion's den is like a nasty adult store that's like off of like every highway in this country. I don't know if it was like a lion's den. Well, what's the entertainment? I guess it would be girly entertainment. It was absolutely girly entertainment. It was his daughter's-in-laws. Oh, Jill. Yes, I'm telling you. That's who he was. He's going to bring in the family. Gross. So Mason and his men would welcome the riverboat travelers to rest and eat and partake in the girly entertainment. And while these visitors were, quote, enjoying hospitality, unquote, Mason's men would be going through their supplies and pretty much taking anything of value. Mm-mm-mm. But another thing is not only was Cave in the Rock a place for like honest travelers to stop, but it was also became like a, a beacon for bandits. So other bandits that would be like, we need a place to like hang out and chill. They would go there just to be a part of that racket with Mason. Right. Historians agree that Cave and Rock became a place where people would be murdered too. Tell me. There are some notorious characters who show up here around 1797. Tell me everything. A couple of them are called the Harp Brothers. Joshua Harp and Wiley Harp. We're just going to refer to them as Big Harp and Little Harp. Am I Big, Big Harp and you're Little Harp? That'll work. Okay. But these guys were were really bad, Jill. Worse than us. I mean, they didn't just like overeat and like yell at each other. (laughs) How can that be? Tell me everything. (laughs) Oh, these guys were really sick. They were the type of people who would kill just for fun. It's actually said that these brothers murdered between 39 and 50 people, although that count does not include African-Americans because back in the late 1700s, they weren't even considered. That's an insane. Like, as we're talking, I'm getting the picture of Clockwork Orange, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, just like off your rocket killing for entertainment. Exactly. Like total sadists. Whereas Samuel Mason and his gang, he thought of himself as a brigand for profit. He didn't Mm -hmm. kill people for fun. Mm -hmm. And so these guys really, really offended his sense of respectability. I know it seems crazy even to say that, but apparently there was an incident where the Harp brothers tied someone to a horse naked, blindfolded him and ran the horse off a cliff. And we're like laughing about it. Like this was what they did for fun. And it was that point where Samuel said, you know what? You guys need to go. Well, it's pretty bad that Samuel Mason Wolfie is the one being like, you know what? You guys just went a little too far. Yes. In 1799, Mason's band of bandits was forced to leave Cave and Rock because they were being hunted there by bounty hunters. Yeah, they had quite the enterprise there. So now everyone's taking notice and they're like, well, if you want the robbers, they're at Cave and Rock. They have to leave and they move their operations even further downriver. They end up at Natchez. 
They sure do. They follow the Ohio to the Mississippi and end up in Natchez. You know what, John? They what? like the trace. They're digging the trace. Well, sure. Easy pickings. Easy pickings, because we already talked about how a lot of people would be on the trace right after they had sold their goods downriver. But let me tell you something else, though. Living that close to high society in Nanchez, Mason wanted to kind of whitewash who he was and to rejoin society. So being that close to like a hub, like because before he's in Cave and Rock, he's like in the wilderness of Kentucky. But right. this is like a place where he can reestablish himself. That's what he thinks. Good point. Because like we said earlier, Natchez is one of the oldest settlements on the Mississippi, if not the oldest. So there is actually society and culture in Natchez. So he's sick of living on like in the wilderness. He wants to rejoin society. Mason wants to clean up his image, legitimize himself, hobnob with the quality people of Natchez. Mm -hmm. And And it was working for a little while. But then Mason was recognized. Shut up. He was recognized as the scoundrel that robbed Baker. I don't know who Baker is, but apparently Baker was robbed and someone recognized was Wolfie, Samuel Wolfman Nason as the guy who robbed Baker. And so there went any hopes for Samuel to legitimize himself. So what happened? Well, so he's just like, he robbed Baker. Well, then what happened? Well, he was put into jail and he was charged with the robbery against poor Baker. He was convicted and he was publicly humiliated. Humiliated. Tell me how. Well, he was lashed. He received 39 lashes publicly. Why not 40? Why not 40? Good question. I don't know. Apparently, they drew the line at 39. Okay. Anyway, and then he spent 12 hours in the town pillory. What's a pillory? The wood with the hole for the head and the hole for the wrists. Oh, yes. And the outlaw has to put their hands and head in the pillory. And then they have to stay there for an extended amount of time as public punishment for their crimes. Oh, my gosh. That would suck. No. So this completely backfired. This is 180 degrees from what he wanted. This is not. This is not what he wanted. He wanted. He claimed he was innocent the whole time when he he was when he was. Yes. When he was in the pillory, he was saying, I'm innocent, like 12 hours. Really? Ain't me. Really? He's like, I don't even know Baker. Really? That's what he said. But he said the bitterest part of the punishment is that all the people of high society Natchez were like gawking at him. So he was like a public embarrassment. So it wasn't even like he was like a joke. He takes no responsibility for his actions Mm -mm. and he's just embarrassed. Okay. I I hate to bring him up again, but what's going on with the harps at the time? Because now this is all happening with Samuel Mason. Those crazy lunatic harps are on the loose. What's going on? After the Mason gang found themselves unable to stomach the brothers' cruelty and forced them to leave the shelter of Cave in the Rock, they recrossed the Ohio River and were in Tennessee for a time. There is said to have been several more murders This is really graphic, so if you are squeamish or really sensitive to content, this would be a time to fast forward because Jennifer is going to describe horrible things. Yes. So the Harp brothers committed terrible murders of men, boys, women, infants. In one case, they butchered an entire family in their sleep. Their methods included disemboweling people still alive, 
smashing infants' skulls against a tree. Oh, God. And cutting the throat of another infant who's crying disturbed Big Harp sleep. Horrible to contemplate. By late summer of 1799, the Harp's killing spree had prompted the formation of a posse who then found them and captured them. Yeah, it was the family members of some of the victims. Little Harp escaped, but his brother Mm. was wounded by a rifle shot before being felled with a tomahawk. Big Harp remained alive, although grievously injured, and he ended up confessing to more than 20 murders. He did express some regret over the murder of one of the infants before his captor, also the father of one of the infants, beheaded him. He just couldn't hear it anymore. He couldn't hear it. And he literally, he was just like, enough, I can't do this. Who could blame him? Mm-mm. He cut off his head and placed it on a pike and... <laughs> It was displayed at a crossroads. The site today is marked with a historical marker and the section of highway where it it was displayed is known as Harp's Head Road. Okay, this is the second time um, that I'm hearing that we had used pikes. Why are you saying we? Display? You and I have never. I'm going to go on record and saying that Jill and I have never displayed anyone's head on a pike. That's true. But... In American history, this is the second time I heard of Americans displaying heads on pikes. I've, that is just crazy. And you know what? This guy, of course, he, he was an MFer. He deserved his head on a pike. I can see that. But it is a little grisly and gruesome for me. I don't want to be traveling and then have a head on a pike. You know what I mean? Just saying. It's just distracting. You have to keep your eyes on the road. Exactly. Exactly. And then you're turning around like, did I know him? Who is that? <laughs> Who's the unlucky SOB? Little Harp, however, did escape and once again got out of Kentucky and fled to the Illinois Territory. Interestingly, he got back to Sam Mason's gang and joined his Pirates and Thieves. How did that happen? Well, let me just tell you. Remember that pillory incident that happened in Natchez? Yeah. After that, Sam Mason gave up any hope of going back to society and was all in as like mob boss. Yeah, but he didn't like Little Harp. He didn't like Little Harp. Little Harp convinced him that it was his brother. See, it was all his older brother's idea, all that brutality. Uh, you know it wasn't his fault. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. See, you can't you know how they, trust you know how the older sibling, siblings. You can't trust younger siblings. They really? blame is everything the, on the that, old, they blame everything that, on the older sibling. It has nothing to do with the older siblings' behavior and being domineering and controlling. We will see what happens next, Jill, to Little Harp. So he allows him to join. Now we have Little Harp joining back with Samuel's gang, and Samuel is all in outlaw now. Now he is He's big. double downing. He is double downing his outlawness. He is just going 110% badass. What is happening? According to Robert Coates, the author of The Outlaw Years, The History of Land Pirates of the Natchez Trace, Samuel developed a new wild kind of audacity and blatant vengefulness. He began to placard his crimes. In other words, after someone was murdered, his name would be scrawled with the blood of his victims. Mason, it would read. Jesus. 
1802, the new governor of the Mississippi Territory, William Claiborne, wrote to the Spanish governor general in the province of Louisiana. So his counterpart in the Spanish territory. Right. We're looking at part of this territory being owned by Spain at this time. And he's all like, "Okay, we have a problem with robbers and brigands and murderers. Right. It is a real problem, not only to the United States and United States citizens, but Spain, this is your problem to. So, right, right. Because people going to your territory are also using these rivers and the land. Mm -hmm. So he asked for help. He's like, hey, Spain, let's let's capture these outlaws. So you have like a multi international now an international Mm -hmm. pursuit of these of Sam Mason and his gang, which is now not just his family anymore. His family exponentially. Yes. So in the same year, 1802, Mason and Little Harp attempted to board the boat of Colonel Joshua Baker between Yazoo and Walnut Hills, now near Vicksburg, Mississippi. Another baker. There's a lot of bakers. They're just targeting bakers now. That's not right. (laughs) Wouldn't you change your name at this point? To the candlestick maker? (laughs) Seriously. The governor responded by ordering 15 to 20 volunteers to track down Mason and his men at a reward of $2,000. That's a lot of money. Yes. That's a lot of money today. Mason's gang with Little Harp continued to raid passing travelers. And eventually, guess what? They were captured by Spanish authorities in Louisiana. Can I tell you? What? Let me like so the the Spanish authorities rounds up Samuel, a couple of his sons and little harp. OK. Yeah. And he's like, we're just a family that we're like looking to move into the Spanish territory. I have a passport and everything like we're legit. But little harp had a bag of scalps. Get out of here. Swear. Oh, he totally so gave the, him away. The, the Spanish authorities like, OK, um, that's fine. But can you explain <laughs> these for me? And then it was like, oh, sorry. It's okay. And I blame Mason because how are you going to trust Little Harp? Seriously. You know he's not right in the head. Exactly. You know he's not right in the head. And why are you collecting gold? Like, what is happening? Oh, my. Oh, my. Little sicko. Okay, continue. Despite this, despite being captured by the Spanish, they were actually able to escape. They overpowered the Spanish troops guarding them. They escaped. Mason shot in the leg and they scatter. Yeah. Harp is separated from Mason. And the rest of the family. They're like cockroaches in the light. Exactly. Now the governor ups the reward for Samuel Mason. Now he's worth $2,500. They pursue him for six months, but they can't find him. No, he's a veteran. He knows these roads. In September in 1803, Little Harp and a friend, James Hayes. Or Mays. And the author of the book, The Outlaw Years, The History of Land Pirates on the Natchez Trace. Yeah. What's his name? Coates. The only side note he says about James Hayes or Mays is that his sister is Clubfoot. What the hell? I just think it's a rude detail. It is a rude Why detail. Why are you bringing her, his sister into this? I'm telling it's you. It's just like, really? The women in this story certainly need a voice. Check out our Patreon page, our detours. <laughs> <laughs> so Little Harp and James Hayes or Mays, depending on which source you're looking at, they start 
looking for Samuel Wolfman Mason to capture him. Stop it. To turn to because now he's worth his head is worth twenty five hundred dollars. Well, that is a lot of money. I mean, that's not retirement money, but that's a lot of money. They find him in hiding in a swampy area just west of Natchez. They join him for dinner that night. After dinner, there's Little Harp, there's James Hayes or Mays, whatever his name is. Talking about his club-legged sister. They're relaxing, maybe having a smoke. All of a sudden, mm-hmm. they take out a tomahawk and chop off his head. Ugh. They just chop his head off. That's not subtle. No, I think that he would be like, hey, do you have a match? And so Samuel's like, well, let me look. And then someone like the other one comes up behind him, gets the, the tomahawk and... Then they add insult to injury. They take his head and they preserve it in blue clay to prevent well, it that's, from that's spoiling. That's just practical. It could be in anyone's head. So you think they wanted to preserve it so that they could show that it was Samuel yeah. Mason? Yeah. Be like, don't you recognize this man from the, the uh. pillory? So then the two of them, you know, they're outlaws, too. So they get in disguise because now they have to pretend that they're legit and they want to collect this money, right? So they disguise themselves. They return to Natchez with Samuel's head to claim the $2,500 reward. However, they're recognized. Mm -hmm. They're arrested and they're tried in federal court and found guilty of piracy. And they never do collect the reward. Instead, they're hanged in Greenville, Mississippi in 1804. How do you like that? No pikes. No pikes. Everybody gets their just desserts. Whose voice? Who's the voiceless? I don't know, Jill. Jennifer, you know. I know you want to give voice to Wolfie. It's not that I want to give voice. It's that we make a contract with Spirit, and this man's voice was loud and clear, and he wanted us to talk about him. Tell me why. Well, he is reaching out in Spirit because he still wants to be a respectable man. He thinks that some of the conflicting historical accounts of who he was and what he did is really unflattering, and he wants to be like, I wasn't that bad of a guy. You know, you bring up a good point. There is a lot of controversy surrounding the history. There are some historians who talk about how he was respectable and not as bad as some murderers, such as the Harps. And then there are others who paint him in a different light. But he's 100% right. He is associated with murderers and robbers. So yeah, no, that's not legit. Absolutely. I think back to the wedding about how he had his son-in-law killed and it was his sons, his sons that actually killed. Yeah. So, I mean, maybe he wasn't killing. Yeah. He may have not gotten his hands dirty, but he definitely is culpable. It sounds like he wants the sort of romance associated with that archetype of the mob boss, Al you know, Capone. the Tony Soprano, the El Capone. Yes, that sort of guy who can go to the opera, who can get all dressed mm-hmm. up and have a nice dinner at a restaurant. He never had that. Yeah, he's still trying to integrate into society. But right. instead, his name is forever associated with these low class, nasty heart boys, right? Right. Well, and I think that's fair. I think that is a fair picture of him. But what do you think? Do you think he wants us to say that that he really was a good guy, that he was wronged? Because we're not saying that. I absolutely really believe that his expectation of us doing a story with him being the voiceless is him saying, 
I'm not that bad. I, you know, think of me as like, you know, just any powerful person. Really? Yes, absolutely. I think that we would, what is interesting about it is we look at the implications of Samuel speaking to us in spirit, right? Right. What does it tell us that this man wanted a voice Mm-hmm. And he's clearly, I mean, at best a criminal, at worst a vicious murderer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What does that say? I think it says that when you communicate with spirit, you can't always take it at face value. And you really don't know who you're you're communicating with, number one. But secondly, you don't know if they're credible. Are Is their voice a credible voice? Because like you said, at first, you were kind of believing him and you had to do a deep dive into some of these historical documents to be like, wait a minute, this guy is not the way he's portraying himself in spirit. Mm-hmm. I don't like him at all. I don't like his energy. I don't believe him and I didn't want to give him a voice. But here we are. Well, I think it's a good metaphor for for life itself. Like no matter who, what energy you're communicating with, whether alive or dead, you have to have some discernment. Like what are they trying to communicate? Right. right? Is it honest? Exactly. Is it honest? Yeah. I like it. You do? I do. Do you like the story better? I think it's an interesting story. I'm glad we're not saying what he wants us to say. That gives me some sense of satisfaction. Mm-hmm. Did we dupe them? <laughs> so let's go over our hits. Please. That idea of a strong sense of community and culture, but also inability to blend into it, sticking out. It's so much the culture of Nanchez, the family, his family unit that was following him around. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the feeling of a, a crossroads or a highway. I mean, it's the trace for the trace. sure. Mm -hmm. 100%. The attack on travelers. Do we need to insult our listeners? Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Being left for dead. Hello. Which they would have done to a lot of their victims. Ugh. Definitely the harps did. Sure. Family connections and or units. His posse Mm -hmm. was originally his family unit. All his family. Just his family. And then the false modesty of the women pretending pretending to be something they're not those women first of all the women that they were the bait on the highway the women that were the entertainment oh yes jennifer yes i really do think the point of this story big picture is to really really recognize how you feel about something or even know it seems clear if something feels off so just use that discernment really whether it be like I said, colleague, just what, who are you dealing with and why are you feeling the way that we feel? Because it originally, it it felt like an open and shut case. Like, this guy wasn't so bad. Right. But it turns out he, he may have been. And not only that, he's still holding on to this legacy in this life. Right. So what does that mean? Meet us at Detours to continue <laughs> the conversation. All right, Jill, tell the people where they can find us. Check out our website, commonmystics.net. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Listen in wherever you're listening to your favorite podcast. But if you happen to be listening on Apple, please leave us a positive review so other people can find us. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you. Good night.